Whether you're looking for a pre-dinner aperitif, a wine to pair with brunch, or an easy drinking beer to stock your fridge, Bottles Beverage Superstore has you covered. Browse a wide array of spirits for all of your favorite cocktails, food-friendly wines at every price point, and a huge selection of beers, including some of your favorite local brands. The educated staff at Bottles can help guide you in the right direction. With locations in Mount Pleasant and Columbia, Bottles is open seven days a week. Welcome to the Winnowed podcast about dining in the South and beyond. I'm Robert Moss, the author of Barbecue, the History of an American Institution. And I'm Hannah Raskin, food editor at The Post and Courier. Now today we're doing the past and future of home cooking edition uh, of the Winnow, since today we're going to talk about home cooking and, and what people are doing in the kitchens today and how that's changed over the years. And we're really happy to have joined us a special guest who knows, I'd say, a fair amount about uh, home cooking, Natalie Dupree. Natalie, thanks for joining us. Lovely to be here. <laughs> and now I'll probably get all this wrong, but you, you uh, were the host of at least eight different cooking series. Is that series, that yeah. Right? Well, I did uh, 300 shows Depends on how you count, of course, whether it's 12 in a, in a holiday show and or 26, you know. I, but I anyway, you extra credit yeah, for the holiday yeah, shows. Yeah, sure. yeah, right. yeah. But anyway, I did um, uh, 300 shows for PBS and then 100 and something, 65 and 65, whatever that is, 130 for uh, the Food Network. So, so quite a lot of episodes under your belt. So I think right. 14 different cookbooks. Um, yes. The latest is it Southern Vegetables is the, yes. the latest. And when did, yes. when did that one come out? That's... Oh, gosh. Last year. Last year. So <laughs> no, that was the newest. So, you know, not not only have cooked a lot at your home, but taught lots of different people, uh, both in, right. in person and, and over the airwaves and through books, uh, uh, you know, how to cook at home. So, so thanks for joining us and Thank um, you. give us some context on a home cooking. Uh, yeah. And we should say that Natalie is here by uh, listener request, which that, is that kind is of fun. I, you know, I used to DJ in college and we used to take requests <laughs> and I haven't had one in a long time. So it's oh, nice to get a request for nice. Natalie Dupree. Is that nice? <laughs> so, yeah. Yes. Well, Hannah, I know that, you know, to uh, maybe tee this up, uh, there, there is a cookbook, another cookbook uh, that, that you've been involved with that's, that's coming out soon. And I think we wanted to talk about that a little bit. And maybe we'll get into to the conversation from there. Sure. So the cookbook, which will be available as of October 28th, I believe, is the Post and Courier's first cookbook in more than 50 years. So um, what we attempted to do with this book, and it ran... Um, as sort of as a, a series in the paper over the last year, um, we had asked chefs to send along a recipe that they felt captured Charleston dining, and in this case, we mean restaurant dining, right now. So that 50 years hence, people might be able to recreate some idea of what it was people were getting so excited about now. So who worked on, on the book? Oh, obviously, the chefs contributed. Was that in, Were you doing the editing? Did you have others? Minions. Uh, uh, I should warn you, it's a great book to look at. The photos are terrific. It has not been tested. <laughs> so, we do not have a test kitchen. No here test at the kitchen paper. here. So I don't think none of those came through your kitchen. No, we there wasn't anything. No. So Natalie obviously um, does the video recipes for the Post and Courier and is a frequent contributor um, and has offered to help when we need it. But I think in right. this case, y'all right. are on your own. Right. Yeah. Well, I think I think that they were mostly chef. They're all chefs, yes, I mean, yes, all, chef. all chef, right, and driven, right. and and uh, so you really have to um, test chef-driven recipes with their equipment and yeah. so forth to really 
do them justice. Yeah. So, especially a lot of them are based on very large volumes of ingredients. Exactly. Much, much different exactly. than you would use in, in, yeah. a, in a home kitchen. Right. So, and Natalie, talk about that. I mean, obviously, especially here in Charleston over the last 10 years, there's been a huge rise in chef culture uh, and a lot of, of emphasis on dining. What, what does that mean for the home cook? Does it tend to be more inspiring? Is it more intimidating? How do these two things interact? I don't think a lot of play? chef cooking has any relationship to home cooking. Um, you know, I was just thinking about Robert when he was talking about barbecue, and it flashed through my mind that really it was only in the 70s or 80s. I remember my first barbecue mm-hmm. contest, <laughs> put it that way. And we went to barbecues at people's home 4th of July. But, you know, now barbecue is synonymous with everywhere in the South, it seems to me. So there are a lot of changes that are chef-driven in that sense. Right. And and talk about, we've talked some about contests and the roles that they've played in in, in cooking through the years. Well, I think that's right. I think contests have. I mean, going back to the beef cook-off and the chicken (laughs) cook-off, which were wonderful uh, areas because they chose recipes that were doable by the home cook, but didn't have a lot of additives like, say, uh, the Betty Crocker, the Pillsbury, excuse me. Pillsbury, right, which is back. Now the Pillsbury Bake Off is back. Oh, really? The Bake Off is back. Oh, gee, they treat you very well. You get to lie around swimming pools. (laughs) So by all means, get invited, Hannah. I should. Yeah, I'll have to see if I can wrangle it. That sounds like a pretty good good gig if you can get it. Right, right. Now, I think we may want to 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 start off. This is something that, that I, I didn't really know because I always knew you from the, the television shows, which are sort of just were always on P- PBS, I guess, as I was uh, really getting started cooking. But I didn't realize that you'd gotten, well, not your start, but at one point you started a, a cooking school in Atlanta. Right. I um, I had wanted to learn to, to be a chef uh, when I was a sophomore in college and cooked in an international student house where I was living for two weeks when the cook got sick. And I told my mother then, and she said, ladies, don't cook. <laughs> but then I married my favorite former husband. And when I was looking for a flat, I met a, a girl who was also looking for someplace to live. She said she was going to a cooking school, and I'd never heard of a cooking school. So after I left the Cordon Bleu, my graduation day, I met Julia Child. And so I asked her, like you would anyone, what should I do with the rest of my life? Wait, was she in attendance at the graduation? Or yes. Just, okay, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. this is at the, yes. the court And they blue. brought me out because I was the, the American. Oh, I see. So I see. you were in Paris. No, no. London. 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 London court on Excuse me. Sorry, okay. excuse me. I no. didn't make it clear. Um, but anyway, so she came to, the, uh, to see what we had done. I did a, a turkey, a boned and stuffed turkey covered with an angeli which nobody in their right mind would make again <laughs> right now, but which was very fashionable in that era sure. of French cooking. And I still love aspic to this day. No one does it to yeah, suit no, me. No one does aspics anymore, do they? <laughs> no. 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 But it's anyway. one of those things like, uh, like Filipino cooking. They keep saying, it's, it's, it's time, it's coming, it's, it's, it's coming, it's, it's right. coming. And it never point. really it, quite it, comes right, back. Yeah, right. no. So after graduation, I went up. She was on the street with Paul. And I just crossed over and said, so, you know, I'm going back to the States soon. 
Um, we t had a little detour to Majorca, but then we came to the States, and I said, what should I do? And she said, you should open a cooking school. So I did have my own restaurant in Social Circle, Georgia, but someone from Rich's department store came to me and asked me to start a cooking school. And so I had um, 20 stoves, wow. and uh, it was full participation. I called Julia on the phone and said, you know, I need to talk to you about this cooking <laughs> school that you told me to do three years ago or five years ago on the streets of London. Surely you remember. And <laughs> She's been she about said, you know, <laughs> and so we talked and she, Anne Willen had just opened her school. And so in France, so she said, well, you should do full participation. So, of course, I did just what Julia told me to do. <laughs> I did full participation. Wow. Uh, and so were, that, I would guess every student comes in and cooks at their own stove right alongside. Right, like, right. You. There were two students to a stove. I paired them off so that they could do a full meal every, every um, session. And, um, and it was where I really learned how hard it is to write a recipe because, say, they would all roast a chicken, and one woman had a habit of sitting on a stool and opening the oven and leaning down and taking the chicken out and turning it and putting it back in the oven and then closing the door. And her, her food was never done, you know. And, but she thought she was following the recipe. And other students would do it, you know. So I really learned from seeing... 20 different chickens. Right. And I would imagine then you probably had more bad habits to break, right? Now it seems people have no idea how to cook sometimes. But I Well, would I think, think when then, you don't have any idea to cook, you you do, you know, do bad things. But I mean, not out of things. habit. Whereas no, I would not imagine, out of habit. Yes, right. That people yeah. may have learned from their mother or something, which maybe now right. they don't. And they had just... Right, the right. wrong way. Right, right. Or right, they right. remembered it. Or they right, right. The mother wrong. did it perfectly. Right, right. Yeah. yeah. Now, I was reading it, at that time, which is the late seventies. I think you, you, the food, the, the type of cooking you were teaching at the Riches School that was, initially was French. Is that right? You, more, well, more continental. I guess. Um, yes and no. Um, I when I had my restaurant, I did do. Um, I had just returned from Spain. So I was very much cooking on what I grew and on what the neighbors dropped off because they had too much. I was living in the country. It was a country restaurant. And so I was doing whatever with the food, uh, a, a combination of Spanish and French and, and local food. So it wasn't strictly French um, because there wasn't a lot of strictly French uh, desire out there when I served green beans <laughs> Uh, everyone complained about the crunch. So, you know, I adapted that, and it was sort of Southern French. I think of it as the basis for new Southern cooking. And so I did, um, I mean, my first classes were geared towards French cooking because, of course, Julia Child was very popular there. But I always had with me my wonderful friend, Kate Almond, who was a country cook. And so we would always work in uh, So truly something. taking, like, Le Cordon Bleu and the techniques there, mixing it with the local ingredients well, and then southern and that's cooking what, techniques. And that's what I felt southern, when I taught southern cooking was. You know, I took the techniques, and all of a sudden I realized 
my gosh, the techniques that were French and Italian were the same as Southern. You know, there they were. You watch Juliana Bugiali make a bis- make a pasta like this, and you watch Kate make a pasta the a biscuit the same way, going around in a circle and combining and and moving their fingers in and out, and you think everything is related. Yeah. You know, it, you, everyone does it the natural way. It seems to me. Right. And we should say for listeners who may not be familiar with Natalie's body of work that she was very instrumental in, you know, meeting up with farmers or growing your own food. I mean, long before anyone else All was doing much. Table All was before a, Farm right. to Table was a phrase. Right, so this right. is important. We yeah. did. We wanted at that time, people didn't know that milk came from cows <laughs> and eggs came from chicken. It was just this dearth of information. And so Every um, TV show, we would have a two-minute insert while we went to a farm, originally in Georgia, and then uh, because the agriculture commissioner let us use his plane, and then ultimately all over the South. So we did 300 of those. I'm so curious, I can ask you, but one of the things I've been thinking about recently is with climate change and the weather changing. I mean, now that we've taught everyone that you eat asparagus in the spring and you eat, you know, squash in the fall, and now they're all going to change. All these seasons will change, and we're going to be having strawberry shortcake for Thanksgiving. And I don't know how people I have thought the same thing, Hannah. (laughs) You know, how long is that going to, when is it going to be? Right. And and if we have strawberries for Thanksgiving, are they going to be ripe? Right. Well, it's it's amazing now that they're, at least last year, they had strawberries in December and January growing at Boone Hall Farm, right? Right. I mean, it's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. Right. So I'm just curious when people's current interest in seasonality is going to eclipse their interest in tradition, right? We don't have strawberries for Thanksgiving. And so I, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm curious how the tradition it's is going to be change. very it's interesting, be interesting, isn't it? Yeah. 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 Well, at that time, um, who was taking your classes at the Rich, Rich, Rich's cooking school? What type of, of students were coming, coming in the door? Well, I, I think um, women really did not have, they were like I was. They didn't even know cooking schools existed. I didn't know what the Cordon Bleu was when I moved to London. And they really wanted to learn how to cook the techniques. And it was a very competitive era of, of uh, going out and, and uh, having a recipe for your, for your um, I mean, a, a dinner party for mm-hmm. your friends and serving um, filet of beef and uh, um, in a demi-glaze or whatever, making your own stock and browning your own bones and all of that. And so they really wanted to learn that. They wanted to go into careers of their own in food. And I felt an obligation to to train them. I had a very uptown group of dishwashers (laughs) that were and volunteers. Um, And many women that wanted to get divorced and were casting around wives of doctors and things that were casting around for something to do that would bring them in an income and whether food would be mm. it because they loved cooking. And were they thinking like catering, or opening restaurants, that type of thing, going into commercial cooking? Or? Well, they did all sorts of things. They opened tea rooms. They started writing. I mean, some of them wrote cookbooks while they were there. Uh, right. I mean, several of my students, the first Cuisinart cookbook from Georgia, I think, mm-hmm. was written by a student of mine at the time that she was wow. 
taking lessons. I mean, they everyone was doing. I say Cuisinart, food process. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Excuse me. You know, but anyway, you know, they were all writing, doing everything they could right then to accelerate their careers. It was a a time when women were hungry for uh, a new opportunity. That's really interesting. And I imagine food was not only a passion for them, but it is a probably easier way into a man's world than to be. Well, it was. Yeah, that's right. And also, you know, you have to remember there were women food editors, but the women food editors usually had just started out as writers Mm -hmm. at the newspaper. They didn't necessarily have any background. Um, I taught food editors, too. Mm -hmm. I mean, Ann Byrne Mm -hmm. came to me as a as a student and went on to write many books and so forth. So uh, food writers, food editors all came from all over the South. So I had the opportunity to sit into some of your classes when Southern Susan was still here in Charleston. And we can talk about that, too, that now there isn't really a cooking school uh, locally the way there was, right? But how do you characterize your your teaching style as as a cook? Well, I, um, I believe in making mistakes. I think that if you don't make a mistake in a class or a television show, that people don't learn. Uh, and I see famous chefs. Uh, one of the things that I think of is like if you have a creme caramel or a flan, everyone wants to learn that. No matter, mm-hmm. it's just one of those ageless recipes where they want to know how to make that. It might have been the first dessert they ever had in a restaurant or or their Spanish mother made it or whatever. Well, I remember seeing a very famous chef and what, looking at his, I guess it was a creme caramel, and it had all these pock marks on the bottom uh, from the fact that it was too hot on the bottom. And he didn't, um, it clearly was made in the back. He didn't make it on, on uh, camera. Um, someone in the back had made it. And he didn't say how to fix that. And I thought what a shame it was not to own that mistake and say, gee, you know, if you put a cloth in a, in a pan when you're going to make a custard um, and then the, the dish on top of it and then the water, that cloth will keep it from making bubbles on the bottom. Right. And that's some of the most useful things. You know, that, and that's to what you is, want. Is, is yeah. what to avoid or, or how right. to fix problems. You know? Right. Not, and not that, just the technique itself. And because those those realities are inevitable. I mean, that's so much what you address in your column for the paper, I feel like, to say, like, maybe you don't feel like cooking or maybe you have leftovers from this meal or that meal. I mean, these are the things, I think, that really happen to people, right? Right. So. And, and I, I like to do that because if people don't think – that they can do anything with those leftovers, or if they don't think that, if they think that they have to be perfect, mm-hmm. or that they can't just throw some food away if it doesn't work right. and start all over, <laughs> you know, they're never going to cook, and then what? Right, right. So, so we were talking about this a little bit earlier, which is I was saying I was speaking to some members of the food team at the Washington Post, and they said one of the things they're grappling with now is readers' reluctance to cook at all. Um, and not just because they're afraid of imperfection, but they just don't really seem to like it. They're part of the Blue Apron generation, and they feel like if they have to co- you know, stir two things together rather than just buy that you know, at the store, it's they, 
too much has been asked of them. So I'm curious if you've seen that uh, here as well, and if you think that really is a, a, a trend to watch out for. Well, I don't seem to attract that kind of person. Right. I find a lot of families of men cooking. Mm-hmm. I always found that. We yeah. always knew that we had hidden men looking at the cooking <laughs> school. Yeah. Uh, I mean, at looking at the cooking show. And I taught a lot of men. So, um, but I, I think I see more families cooking mm-hmm. and pulling it all together, uh, a team in the kitchen, uh, of spouses and um, and um, whoever's living together all throwing in. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't have an objection if someone wants to make onion soup and they don't have time to caramelize the onions. I don't mind if they go buy Whole Foods or wherever and buy all the caramelized <laughs> onions on the on the buffet line yeah. for sale, <laughs> and come home and put them in their pan. Now, that may be consi- what the Post is talking about, but I think that even in itself means that they know that the onions have to be caramelized right. and cooked and that they want to have those aromas and smells in the home. Right. Well, I, most yeah. people want the house to smell good. Yeah, that is actually one of the... Yeah. Best things is when you come home and you open the door and someone's been cooking all day and you say, oh, wow, you're yeah. welcome right. home. I'm ready, right. ready for dinner. I think there's this long been this tension that people have felt and, they, and you know, people were feeling it in the 19th century of as, you know, as American get, got away from everyone living on a farm and everyone just just part of your daily routine was to get up every morning and cook all day long. As people got further and further removed from that, there's always been this expectation that, and you need to cook, and particularly for, for women for, for so long. And though it's starting to change a little bit now that families are taking on both responsibilities, but there's a desire to cook and create good food. But at the same time, there are people who don't necessarily enjoy it or don't have the you know, the background and the training. And so for them, it's it's a chore. And that, I think there's that tension between it. I think Blue Apron right. is playing right into that. Particularly today, everyone wants farm fresh, organic ingredients and all. Everybody goes out and eats these food. But that's really hard to cook at home if you don't enjoy chopping onions or you just no one's ever really taught you how to do it so it, it's and it's awful. unrealistic if you don't shop once a week right. and have some sort of a plan in your mind for what you're going to do and but I don't think we're as rarefied as Washington mm-hmm. I, I think there when you talk about cooking I mean how many nationalities do they have reading the paper 26 30 50 sure and so you're talking about People don't want to cook Indian food at home or whatever. <clears throat> it's just like the New York Times. I, I see how rarefied they are mm-hmm. in terms of ingredients. I mean, I'm not going to go out and, and get those ingredients. Uh, I haven't even heard of half of them. <laughs> and and right. I'm pretty sophisticated. Right, 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 right. It's well, interesting because um, with this cookbook we're putting out, I just recently gathered some t- statistics to figure out what is happening in Charleston home kitchens, which is hard to find out because supermarkets generally won't share any data uh, other than I think it was – no, yes, Whole Foods told me they're selling a lot of kale. But other than that, <laughs> like, other than that. That's not exactly I, a, a scoop right there. What a, what a shock. Yeah. <laughs> um, but so it was pretty interesting. Um, I got the 10 most pop- most uniquely popular recipes from old recipes for this area. Mm-hmm. 
And I was really surprised by what is the most downloaded. So, and so all recipes was just so one, you, it's one of these sites that just what collects oh, yes. recipes. So all that was right. this is the biggest yeah, global. It's like there's a, it's a no question. Yes, if you're looking recipes. for a recipe online, it's probably you're going to end yeah. up at this I know, site. I, 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 right. I end up there anytime I Google a recipe. It's going to show in the top. Thing, yeah, yeah. Yep, yep, I yep. don't do a lot of that just <laughs> because I don't. So. Right, 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 right. Um, so the number one recipe, uniquely popular. So this takes out all the chocolate this is cakes the and Charleston things. Are this is in the Charleston market specifically. Our most popular recipe here is sausage and red rice. And really? Yep. And the second one is Kansas City barbecue sauce. Really? Yeah. <laughs> I thought that wow. was really is, interesting. Is, is the, I guess the sausage and red rice, red rice being an old Charleston Right. recipe. So I guess there are people looking for that old Charleston it, recipe. There are. And in the and top... Kansas City Park. <laughs> <laughs> you had an undue influence, no, Robert. I, did, I, did, I, I blame it on you. They were looking for mustard-based barbecue sauce. I think they've had so I much mustard barbecue. That seems to be the problem. They, there. Yeah. Be. I think that's right. And people that move here yeah. don't know from mustard barbecue right. sauce. I mean, no. mustard barbecue sauce was new to me. Mm-hmm. And... Yeah. Uh, I was a grown woman before I met it. Right. Yeah. And I'm not really sure I'm happy about <laughs> it. You know, it's certainly not my favorite. No? No. What um, do you like on barbecue? Oh, I like vinegar-based. Vinegar. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I like vinegar-based. Yeah. That has changed a lot just in, in, in my life. I grew up in Greenville, South Carolina. Never even heard of mustard-based barbecue sauce. No. And just 50 miles down the road, and when I moved down to, to, to Columbia, you know, 100 miles down the road, all of a sudden, it's all over the place. That was the first time I had it. I was in graduate school. I, I did eventually fall in love with it, but I lived in Columbia for 10 years. So I, I, it sort of got uh, right. seeped into me, I think. I forgot to ask all recipes just in Kansas City if mustard barbecue that sauce is like the charge. That would be great. Yeah. But, I, well, I don't know what that's about or whether that's about <laughs> something on television. Well, you know, whether that followed some one of those people with long, dirty-looking hair going around into diners and things <laughs> on television. You're blaming Guy Fieri? <laughs> oh, no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't name names. I, I, and and uh, I so they had a clean. show that just greased. showed <laughs> Kansas City barbecue. Maybe. I called the guy who wrote the recipe, because that's the whole idea of all recipes is, you know, you contribute these things. Oh, so, yeah. So, yeah. You, yeah, I would never thought this. So, yeah, he, I called him up. He, uh, he had developed this sauce for Is his, he in Kansas City? No, he calls it Kansas City style. He developed it for his restaurant in Iowa. Iowa. And it was his restaurant there was called Yankee Barbecue. Yankee Barbecue. Yep. And that is the most popular barbecue sauce in Charleston, South Carolina. Do you remember? All sorts of things. He thinks the reason it's popular, he says it's, you know, it's done pretty well, although it's done really well here, um, is he doesn't use liquid smoke. He suggests putting the sauce in the smoker itself, if you can, if you want smoke. Um, But he thinks it's the not using liquid smoke. Yeah, you don't do that. Liquid smoke. Actually, I judged a barbecue sauce competition two weekends ago. Oh, wow. um, Which is the first. I've done barbecue. I've never done a sauce competition. And uh, it was like 32 sauces that we had to judge. It was at the North Carolina Whole Hog Barbecue Championship up in Raleigh. And so we had these little bottles, and you squirted it into a little cup, and you had some pork you dipped into mm-hmm. it. The ones with liquid smoke, you could just, it, it punched you in the tongue as soon as you tasted them. They were oh. just awful. And yes. so please don't put liquid smoke in your in your uh, in barbecue sauce. It, it, it Especially if I tasted 32 side by side, that's the surefire killer of a barbecue sauce. And and I wasn't alone. The other judges all agreed. Every time we hit one, we're like, oh, it's smoke. You could just see it on people's faces. Well, and that whole thought that if the more smoke, the better. Yeah. 
I mean, uh, liquid smoke has never entered my house. I will, <laughs> I will tell you, and nor either one of yours, I'm sure. I actually had some <laughs> well, maybe, maybe <laughs> years ago. No, really. My uh, my mother puts it in our Passover brisket. No. Yeah. No. Yes. <laughs> oh, Hannah, you could have gone all day without telling. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone has their childhood troubles, I guess. <laughs> Yeah. Now, in fact, I think she even has it written in the cookbook, like as if somebody suggested it, you know, as sort of a secret helper. So Funny. Anyways, yes. Well, I had, uh, I just went to the Southern Foodways, and they had a lot of barbecue, a lot of Spanish food. It was mm -hmm. a, a Latino conference, a Latino-American Southern conference. And um, there were some foods that I, I thought, oh, God, this is going to be so smoky. Mm -hmm. I don't want to taste it. Right. But in fact, they're, they're, they really did moderate the smoke. And I had just gotten to the point that I sort of dread smoked right. foods. And you could certainly overdo you it. You can overdo it. Really point. easily. And actually, that's, that's been a problem in barbecue lately is because people say well, a little smoke's good, a lot must be better. But traditional barbecue, like the kind Roddy Scott here in Charleston and others right. make, isn't very smoky because they actually don't no. put burn logs in the pits. They burn them outside. Right. right. It's like and cooking move it over, in. Yeah, and move it in. It's cooking over basically charcoal. It's not cooking over, you know, a smoky fire. It much less creating a chamber full of smoke. But boy, with some of the smokers that are out there now, you can do that if you like, and you can. It tastes like a forest fire, which isn't what you want your barbecue to taste. for this edition of The Winnow. We recorded today's episode in the Home Cook Podcasting Studios at the Post and Courier Building in downtown Charleston, South Carolina. If you enjoy listening to The Winnow, please help other listeners find us too. Just go to iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you download your podcasts and like us or leave a rating. The Winnow is a production of the Post and Courier and Palmetto New Media. Our producers, producer today was the... Very economical. Frugal <laughs> J. Emery Parker. Parker. Our theme music is by the Bluestone Ramblers. Until next time, I'm Robert Moss. And I'm Hannah Raskin. Now get out there and eat. Mm -hmm.